Begin in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have given us your Son. You have shown us that in him we see you. Dear Lord, help us always to receive your word as that one place where we have fellowship with you until the day when you bring us into full fellowship through our resurrected bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, we, we stopped at a really hard point because I, I wanted to uh, spend some time addressing it. Uh, I think it's probably um, one of the issues that we're going to continue to face in our day and age because technology, while it is helpful, also brings with it um, a sinner's heart. And uh, as Pastor Baisley rightly said today, uh, it's, it's not the stuff, but rather the heart that makes things good or evil. Um, so we'll dive into what it means to gather together. Uh, before we get there, though, uh, just a brief review of where we're at. So beginning the book of Hebrews, uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can sort of go through with me. Uh, I'm just going to go chapter by chapter here. Um, in chapter 1, God establishes who is speaking. Uh, this is all vital for understanding uh, and for loving and being willing uh, to come is that Jesus is the one who speaks among us now. Uh, the office of the ministry is established so that the living voice of Christ is still with us. When Jesus says in the last chapter of Matthew, go and make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, many times we take that out of the context. But in that context, it means... The office of the apostles is Christ with us always. So that the office of the ministry will never fail. Because the church on earth is by nature set up as those who call one to fill this office. And then the living Christ is among them preaching and doing the work of Christ and baptizing and administering the sacraments. Um, so Christ really is still speaking. Uh, now, of course, you and your homes, as mothers and fathers, do this as well. Uh, and you speak to one another. You and your workplaces are also this voice of Christ because you carry him with you. Um, so he is also there. But here in Hebrews, he's addressing those who are gathered together and who are now being spoken to, not by some guy, but rather by Christ. So... Uh, let's go to uh, verse mm, 2. He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now the interesting part about this in chapter 1 is he doesn't say, oh, and now there are other teachers. He has spoken to us by his Son, Period. And Transfiguration Day is the perfect day to think about this. Uh, what does God say about Jesus? This is my beloved son of Hear him. There is not, there, there's not a plural. It's not hear them. It's hear him. 
and his voice alone. And so, and as long as his voice is among us, then we have him. If his voice is not among us, we do not have him. That is how you determine if Christ is among you. Okay, so this is then what we're gathering around. The voice of Jesus and also how he applies this to us in word and sacrament. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Verse 2. For if the words spoken through angels prove steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Uh, so again, it's those who come after Jesus are simply those who heard him and who then carry his message. It's not theirs. The gospel does not belong to me as your pastor, but rather is given to me by Christ to give to you. And if I add one jot or tittle, I have condemned myself, and I have become demonic. So, it's those who heard him and were faithful in the transmission of the message. But here too we see uh, in verse 1, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed, pay more attention to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Alright, so, here is the danger of those who do not gather together and who are not coming to see and hear the voice of Christ. They may drift away. And this is his continual admonishment. Um, Jesus wishes to reign among you. And the uniqueness of how Jesus rules is it is not by bodily force or by bodily laws. But instead, he speaks. He communicates. And by doing that, he gives you salvation. All right, so that's... that's uh, what we should be doing. So this whole sermon then is about Jesus talking and paying attention to him. Um, verse 3, or sorry, I'm in chapter 3. Uh, we have Jesus bringing many to glory and also that Jesus is faithful and we should enter into the promised rest if we remain in him. Um, so let's see, where, where's the summary verse here? Um, Jesus is, oh yes, um, in verse 6. So chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house. Now remember, this is, this is saying that Jesus is God. Right? Because Moses was a servant in the house, Jesus is a son over the house. And he tells us who we are. Whose house we are. We are the house of God. If we hold fast the confidence of and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So again, um, we, God speaks the same throughout all time, uh, although the difference is Jesus is here now. Um, all right, so what does it mean that we are his house? What? Dwelling. Okay, what is a dwelling place? 
where he lives. So what are we saying about Jesus? That he lives within us. Yes. But here's the thing too. Um, is, this an is this a statement about an individual? No. It's we are his house. Uh, this, is, this is one of our problems. Uh, and, and we'll address this today. Uh, because we assume that being an individual... Um, we have all that we all that God has promised as an individual, but the point of our being joined to God is that we are a fellowship of believers. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't live in you individually; He does. However, here the emphasis is that we are united. Because if you have the Spirit of Christ and I have the Spirit of Christ, what does it mean about us? Family. Yeah, we're together, we're joined, right? Now, this is true even in the body because your children are united to you in their very being as bodily creatures. Their DNA is yours. If you were to get blood from your children and study it, you would see your genes in them. It, it, that is an amazing thing. Yes, you. My genes are in you. Go back to Granny, sweetie. She won't leave. This is her, her mode. So we see with, with kids, uh, with children... We are united to our parents by blood. We, we cannot stop our unity. And this then should show us the unity of the spirit is on a deeper level. Because it's on a spiritual level. For the soul then uh, and the body are united. And the body, uh, although it is vital to us, uh, isn't, if we have no soul, then the body fades away. Uh, and the, the place of the soul is shown to us even at our death. For what dies? The body does. Does the soul die? No. And so it shows, it's, it shows us that the thing that can die and be put in the ground uh, is, although it is not uh, less needful, it is different. And of course, the resurrection is a necessity. We need our bodies. Right? But uh, if, if then we are united bodily in this way, on the things that are, are, are lesser in dignity, then we should know that if we're united in the most dignified, the most honorable place, that's a greater unity. That's a greater togetherness than even we have with our blood relations. So this is the house then. It's what we're a part of and where Jesus dwells. But we have a danger. So let's look at chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains, I'm in verse 1, sorry. Uh, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. So now, again, we're going through the wilderness together. And this then is our goal. We would make it to the promise. The promise is death in Christ and then resurrection. That's the promise. 
But notice that the direction of this is, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Who is he holding responsible? Us. We should see if you, others in the church, are straying away. So we should not then throw up our hands or wring our hands and say, oh, you know, where is everybody? We should go get them. We should go speak to them and help them because we do not want them to fall away. So this house then of believers are those who are so concerned for their brothers that they would go out and try to seek and find them just like Jesus. Um, all right, let's see. Uh, let's move to chapter 5. Chapter 5, for every, this, I'm in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Uh, here we have Jesus being placed into this office. He's making sacrifices for us, but his office is different because he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now we get to verse 12 in chapter 5. Uh, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. So what is he saying to them again? Yeah, you're being a bunch of babies. You should know now. Now, and he uses the picture of going from solid milk back, sorry, solid food back to milk. That's solid milk. You don't want that. Uh, <laughs> um, solid food back to milk. Now, could you imagine someone in your family reverting back to a childlike state? Um, not because they had to. Now, again, uh, you know, there are sicknesses that do that to you. But I mean just because they chose to. So, so that this person said, you know... It's really difficult to chew solid food. I think I'm just going to grind it all up. And eventually they get back to just having milk again. What's going to happen to them? They're going to die from malnourishment, right? Again, you can't go backwards. And that's his point. Um, if, you, if you wish to return to your childlike state, there's no going back to it. You can't pretend like you don't know the catechism anymore. You've learned it. You know that Christ has died for you. And to go back to those things, uh, as if to go back to you know, retraining in the faith, there's nothing new to be found. Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The problem is us. We get tired of hearing what he has to say. And because we get tired of it, we act like we don't know it anymore, or truly, we fall back into ignorance. And we don't know it anymore. Uh, and then if we say, oh, I already know that, then we fail. Then we lose our faith. Um, so I think that's the picture here, is those who, after learning it once, have forgotten it because they refuse to listen. And now, being one who is ignorant of these things, refuses to hear it again. Because they say, I already learned that stuff. That is the unwillingness then that leads to uh, 
those who are unable to repent. Because there's nothing new for you to be given. So this is what he wishes to avoid. Every time he says, take heed, don't do this. This is what he's saying. If we stop our ears and refuse to hear God, we will lose our faith. And in losing our faith, the only thing that can bring us back is God. And we just cut that off. So there's nothing new to be given. It's not For for someone who strays away from the faith, um, this is why it's more dangerous to have heard and then rejected than to have not heard. Uh, Because you're already saying to God, I don't want to listen to you. But notice then, is this a danger to which we are susceptible? Could we fall into this as a church now? Yeah, we really could. We could fall into this. And that's why he's warning us. Because it's our danger as well. Okay, uh, chapter 7. Now he really jumps into Melchizedek uh, in, in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom, Abra- to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. This is what Jesus then has taken the place of. Uh, Not that he would be a priest in the order of Levi, but a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he will reign forever in a new priesthood. Chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. I'm in verse 1, sorry. Uh, so chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the hand at, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's it. That's the main point. <laughs> you can go home. Jesus is the high priest. He now is the one who has offered himself as an eternal sacrifice and he's giving it to you in this place applying it to you through the church, namely through the office of the ministry, doing what it's supposed to do, to deliver to you the goods that God has won. Right? Chapter 9, that's the one we recently went through, uh, where Jesus has opened a new way through his flesh. But notice again, how do we get there? How do we get to the flesh of Jesus? Now, The sacrament is one way, right? So baptism today, Anson was clothed with Jesus, truly. And also the Lord's Supper, right? The body and blood of Jesus. How else? It's specifically mentioned here many, many times. The Word. And we cannot then put the Word on a lower level, uh, for the Word is the thing that makes sacraments what they are. Jesus speaks them, and they are. So, the word of God is how we have a way. And Jesus says that, right? Be baptized and teach them to obey or to receive the things I have commanded them. That's it. That's the way of God. 
All right, now we're in chapter 10. So we talked about the Old Testament. Those things can never make us holy because they are dealing with the body. But there were shadows, and they were meant to show us Jesus because he would make us holy in our hearts. The distinction is, uh, it's found in verse 10. By that will, namely by Jesus' will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Um, So Jesus did the will of the Father. And that was the whole point. Faith in God is true worship. And we cannot have that faith, therefore, Jesus must give it to us. And because he's given it to us, now we have his righteousness. But now, he brings us to this point. In verse 23. So now now we're back to where we uh, were last week. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right, so we, I, I, say, I spoke briefly about this last week, but th- this is the issue today. Um, why aren't people going to church today? Oh, that's true. So, so some people just stay at home and read the Bible. Okay, yeah, that might be. Why else? Well, what else are people doing today? Why aren't they? Well, let me, let me make it more narrow. So uh, first, let's deal with, um, yeah, let, let's deal with it this way. Why do those who say they are Christian, why are they not going to church? Right, okay, so there's a segment sort of along the lines of, uh, of, of reading the Bible uh, that, uh, that say, I don't, ch- church, I don't need church because it's me and Jesus. Now, we've already addressed that just reading through Hebrews because who is the house of God? We are the house of God. So, so yeah, we, we not me, yeah. <laughs> a slogan. Um, so we are the house of God. And, and being that house of God then, uh, if, if we were to say, well, I, I refuse to meet with my fellow believers, we would be cutting off the rest of the house of God. Right? And that would not be good. Um, so that's one aspect. Is someone who would say, uh, I can do this on my own. I don't need fellow believers. That's, that's true. Uh, so, so that might be a group that says that. Yeah, Gary. I think too that in the uh, modern world there are Two forces that, have, that the devil uses that are basically good in their own right, but but yet he uses them negatively. And one of them is the, the all the rituals which he's used in the Catholic Church to pull people away from the Word. And in our church, our evangelical churches, which is this concept that Scripture is not contained the Word of God, that it's in it somewhere. It's not in there in the Bible, but that there's something inside of that. Either we have to find it or the Holy Spirit flies around like a bird in your basement. And what they have done is they've sep- the devil has separated these people from the church. Where we get the Holy Spirit in the Word, where we get the Holy Spirit in the ritual we do, like our, our, our communion in particular, 
Um, and, uh, and also uh, in baptism. And there's a lot of other things we do that are, you know, sometimes are not ordained by God. As it were, was it Zechariah, you know, they want to have their, their remember Israel, the, the, the Jerusalem meal, and, and go around Jerusalem. Lord, shall we keep doing the meal? He says, hey, can I tell you to do that? He says, no, well, okay, you can do it if you want to, but it's a law on me. All right, because you wouldn't be worried about the traditions and stuff that we get into. But the bottom line is, he says, remember that I brought you out and that you're here now. And then continue with all the other things that he told us to do. And the way we find that is through scripture. And ask yourself, the people who read the Bible, how many of the people by percentage read the Old Testament to see what these things are for? And furthermore, in the area of, of the Holy Spirit and what he's teaching us, the word and through the practices that he's told us to do here in church, we also learn uh, how to treat our neighbor because God in giving us our, our faith in the Holy Spirit now enables us to go out and help our neighbor. And where do we find the rule book, if you will, the rubric that God has given us to do those things and it's in the Word of God? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is. Uh, so let's go back to this, uh, this group who may say, well, we don't need to be together. Um, and maybe that they've made that step you just said, where they separate the Holy Spirit from the things that are here in church. And because they have done that, for them, it, it, it's sort of nonsense to say that there's anything unique that's available to you here as you gather, as opposed to, for them at home, reading the Bible. I mean, for, for them, that, it's just a non-argument because the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. Now, of course, we know he does, and we know that we are not to neglect it because the Bible says so. So we, we have then some unique things that are here with us and for us in, in our gathering. Um, so you have someone who says that. What else? In our day, why else do Christians not come to church? Kim? Yeah, and, and you know, you, you, you mark something uh, very well is sometimes we do a bad job explaining why we come here. And, and I think that might betray in us, you know, maybe we haven't quite come to grips with why we meet together. And, and we should, so that we can give the light and salt in the world. Uh, Judy, did you have something? I was just going to say, um, people also meet at the mega churches, which aren't really teaching the Word of God. So maybe people are getting something from it, but usually it's the feeling of a feel good feeling, not the law. Yeah, the, and, and that's an interesting thing. People will meet together uh, in these campus things. Uh, and again, I think probably, so, so a megachurch, typically what happens today is they, they understand one of the weaknesses is getting lost in a crowd. And so they'll have campuses where the same pastor, the, 
usually like a preaching pastor, will be broadcast into those places. And, and I think they've done well in thinking, okay, well, with this many people, how are you to apply the word of God? So they have a smaller group. Um, but again, uh, sometimes the pastor's not even there, but broadcast to them, and then they have sort of a fellowship time. Um, but the teaching also is vital. Right? If the teaching's not there, then why would you go? Yeah, so that's part of it. There's something more obvious of why Christians don't go to church today. Well, that's true. Yeah, they don't believe it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think people aren't, when they go to church, they don't see God giving them stuff. So they don't see what the benefit is. I mean, God's going to give me something. Why go? It's not worth it to show up to church. I mean, we know we go to church. We receive gifts from Him. We receive forgiveness. We receive communion. Um, When I get home, there's nothing to receive. You can't get that from anywhere else at church. So that's where you receive his gifts. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is there a certainty in the gifts we receive. So if that person uh, does not have the, uh, the clear teaching that we have unique gifts Christ wishes to give us here, then why would you? Um, well, here, here's another thing, though. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say Gnosticism. Spiritual individual is more important than the physical institution. Yeah. And the physical institution is evil. Yeah. And we need to break away from those. Okay, so so now what about this? Oh yeah, go ahead. ahead. You you inspired me. another Another part of Gnosticism is that when you see laws leveled against you, you need to rebel and rise against them. And it seems to me when it's talking about exhorting each other, it's a little bit more than encouraging. Mm-hmm. But it's saying, God wants us to do this. Why are you uh, going against God's will? That exhortation that loves each other, that points out when we have a sinful nature that's exerting itself, that it's not permitted by God but needs to be repented of. There's this firmness, and, and that's what is repugnant. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. If you don't, if you lay down a law for me that I must do this, I'm absolutely not going to do it. <laughs> and even if it's God's law, and that's the point of Gnosticism, when it's God's law, it's an evil God that is laying that upon me. And that spirit is very much alive in our society. The most ancient of heresies is still among us. Yeah. So uh, what about this? What about the person who thinks what we think and thinks, you know, yes, I, uh, and, and so on the spectrum, there's someone says, no, you know, I don't want to go to church because they have a false teaching they believe in about not going to church. Now, what about the less harmful? And I think more of a, what does Walter say the difference between an erring and a, um, stubborn. a stubborn spirit? That's right. So an erring spirit is someone who's, who's just a little confused about things, right? Or, or maybe they've sort of accepted some false teaching, but they're not aware of it yet because they just, you know, they learned it on TV or something and they sort of kept it with them. And then when someone says, hey, you know, that's not what God says. They're like, oh, well, okay, I'll just drop it. Right? Uh, that's an erring spirit. Right? And that happens. And, and I, think, I think many people are still like that among us. 
Um, so if, if someone then is not stubbornly against going to church, but rather uh, they've fallen into something, uh, they believe that church could have many of the things you've said. Gospel, sacraments, great. What may that person fall into that would keep them from gathering? What about that one who is not stubbornly against it? Yeah. Just something, I guess, on the other side of the spectrum, I think people fail to see the beauty of the church, the fellowship of the saints, the getting together, the sacraments and all that. I mean, this is what, this is Jesus' body. He wants us to be together. Don't go away from each other. Come together. I want, I want you just watching if you can, not at home, on the TV. Get together, fellowship. Build one another up in the faith. Even these small conversations we have amongst each other, that's a building up of the faith. Yeah, right. So, so Jesus sees it, and I'll be brief, but I remember, I grew up, in case you don't know, I'm Mexican. Full blooded, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember one time uh, we got together over my aunt's house, I doesn't speak English. And uh, my wife and the kids were over my cousins. We're having a wonderful time, just a great time fellowshipping. I remember looking at my aunt in the corner of the uh, room. She wasn't saying, she was really part of the conversation, nothing like that. She was doing what she typically does. We got enough coffee, got enough to drink, got enough to eat. But she sat there and smiled. <coughs> and just smiled at her family, getting together, loving each other, having a wonderful time, just being together. And I think people feel this, fail to see the beauty of the body of Christ and getting together, getting to know one another, building up in that faith that you say you live at home. Hey, build it up even more when we get together with a lot more people. It's more than just one ember. Get it all together, we got a good fire. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and, and, and taking that idea, I, I, I like the idea of beauty in the sense that sometimes you think of beauty as a subjective judgment. Um, but beauty all is, is an expression of the truth. So when things are beautiful, they are objectively so. Uh, and, and so there is a beauty in gathering together because there's a truth in it. Uh, and, and so the truth is by nature also beautiful. So the truth of gathering together is that we were not meant to be separate. What does God say about Adam after he made Adam? It's not good for a man to be alone. Now, tell me, what does our culture say that's different than that? Social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> Independent. Yes. And both of those things. Because, the, because what we thought, what we thought would help us was probably one of the greatest human harms that has ever been done to us. Isolation. Isolation is a great and evil harm that can be placed upon a human being. And we know it's evil because we know the story of Genesis. God already said, it's not good for man to be alone. Yeah, well, if you're alone, though, you're safe. Yeah, oh, safe from what? From goodness. I mean, if you're going with the scriptures, right? You're right. Adam would have been totally safe from goodness. Because it's not good. And that simple truth, I think, could help us parse through almost everything that's happened recently uh, and everything that's been going on and much of how we see one another. It's not good for man to be alone. And who does he give Adam? 
Yeah, you notice he doesn't just give us, a, you know, another chum buddy who's his friend. I mean, you know, maybe us bachelors, you know, you might think that way before we get married. But then when we're married, we realize that there is something deeper. Family that unites us even on a, on a, on a one-to-one level where two can become one. Um, so th- this then, I think, is one of the greatest truths, the, the most beautiful things we have as humans, and that we've forgotten completely. Now, the, the part of this too is, could, um, could God have done this without Eve being bodily present? I know that sounds like the strangest question in the world, but, let's, but, but I, I, I have a point. Could God have brought Adam and Eve together if they were not together bodily? God can do anything. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're right. Uh, and God, in his infinite wisdom, only did it this way. So then, it's, is, it, is it possible for two people to be together if they're not together bodily? Oh, yeah. Yes. Partially. Oh, okay. See, now you're, not, see, now you're saying partially. <laughs> Before you said it was impossible. So how can two people be together without being together bodily? Spiritually. Oh, well, that's... Mm, mm, uh, maybe. If you're not together bodily, then what, what other togetherness is there? Well, that's a good question. And that's what I asked. <laughs> yes. Having taught police in several years ago, I'm happy that he's the same old clan. <laughs> but, um, again, um, in the context of the word, God not only tells us what they were, but how they were. So God defines their being together, that the two become one flesh. And that's pretty hard if you're in different rooms, or if you're uh, uh, communing together on the internet. You can't be one flesh, as God has put man and wife together, um, by being separate. And so God not only says that he brings them together, but defines it. And he defines our fellowship too, even in this passage of the gathering together. That's, that's his fellowship as he attends it. And that's why he's exhorting us to observe this. And all that, uh, the, 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 the speaking of beautiful, is I so relate to that because it's true. You know, a lot of times, especially when we were kids, we said, Mom and Dad, do I have to go to church? And, and Dad said, yeah, you have to go to church. In fact, we didn't even ask because we would get something in these <laughs> but, but when we came, we were so glad to be with our friends and fellow Christians and to hear Pastor Barth preach the word of God to us. You know, we were glad when we came unto the house of the Lord, it, despite our flesh and all the misgivings. So, um, again, God defines this for us. We aren't left to wonder what he means. That's right. He not only gives the word, but preaches a sermon on it to us, too. Yeah. And, and so I, I ask the question because it's good for us. Uh, questions help us think. And, and, I, and that's what we have to do in our time. We've been given many things we've had to think about that we've never had to think about before. Um, even in the world of FaceTime, we know that that's not the same as being in the same room with someone. But many times now, people 
think that that is the same. So we have to, we have to mark the difference. Uh, and, and not that it's evil to use FaceTime. It's not. It's the same thing as communication. Communication is good. We can communicate across distances. And there is a sense in which we are united in spirit with all Christianity in heaven and on earth. But here we know that those saints in heaven separated from their bodies are not satisfied. They're not satisfied. They're waiting for us. And this is the wonderful thing is that they will not be perfected without us. We are together and we will most certainly be together bodily so that the resurrection is the perfect completion of our bodily unity with one another and most specifically with Jesus. Although we know this already. Because can you take communion through a video? No. You have to actually eat and drink. And this then should tell us a very simple truth that has become more complicated than it should be. <laughs> that Jesus wishes to commune with us bodily. And therefore, that we would commune with each other bodily. We, we, uh, the problem is, in our culture, we, we have been confronted with something that has tried to strip away our humanity. Humanity is being a body and a soul, not just a soul. And that's the Gnosticism part, right? But, but again, the reason why it, it becomes so strange to us is because we, you, you don't have to readdress one plus one because it is an obvious truth. Eleven. <laughs> uh, unless you're Clayson, in which case you need to go to the naughty corner, okay? Well, you have an idea. Yeah. Um, could it be God created persons? He had given all five of our senses. Um, we have those, and God knows that we need them in church to set that up. We need all five of our senses. So the communion is something that's visual, it's a tool. It's something you can touch, you can taste, you can smell, you can see. All of that is included, and it's given to us. So other things, you can't do it on FaceTime. You can't smell, taste. You can't do those things or exercise those senses that God gave us. He knew we would need them. And that's how we set them up. You can experience them in church. Yeah, and, and going on that concept, I think that's probably the best way to sort of filter through some of these things, is uh, what, what senses are you missing on, uh, on a FaceTime call. What senses are you missing? Touch. Touch? Yeah? yeah? What else? Taste. Smell? Taste? I guess, well, some children don't miss that, you know, as they lick the phone. Um, but, but yeah, right? So those ones were missing. What ones do we have? Sight. Sight? Hearing? Hearing. Those are, that's it, right? But there's five senses, not two. And so by nature, that's not the fullness of human fellowship. And maybe that's just the easiest way to go about it. And God then wishes us to have fullness of Christian fellowship by having all our five senses with us um, and, and having then everything among us. So, um, here then we have a collection of bodies in the same place 
And that's the assembly of ourselves together. Now, this do, it does happen that people are forcibly removed from the assembly. That's different and an exception. But exceptions don't make the rule. Right? So if, for instance, someone is so sick they, they're bedridden, that does not exclude them from Jesus. Same thing for the person in prison. That does not exclude them from Jesus. But we should take much caution in cutting ourselves off from fellowship when it's our choice. That is then our greatest, should be our greatest examination of our hearts and minds, that if we, if we decide not to come here as a choice, not be, again, notice those two situations. It's against their will that they're held. Their will is that they would gather, and yet they cannot. Right? But every other instance, if you are not bodily contained, forcibly, is your choice. And therefore, it becomes your will not to gather or to gather. So here then, uh, I, I want you to hear it as those who are uh, not bound, but rather free to will something, and that your will would always be to gather. Always be to come here, to a location where we receive the gifts of Christ. Um, that, those simple things are being questioned among us, and, and I, I, I took the time to do it today, but, but of course, we'll unpack this more as we go. But I just want that to be you know, your first principle. First, that in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. If God says that, nothing that we do can make that different. Now, we, we know that. That's a priori. Right? It's good to know a truth before you run into when you stop doing the truth. Because when you stop doing the truth, what has happened to all those who have remained isolated from others? What happens to them? Apathy, yeah, but worse. We are in a mental health crisis because the human mind cannot be sustained Outside of fellowship. That's, we are, and it's funny because we don't think of the mind as physical. But it is. It's connected to our body. We need people. Now again, that's different than someone who is forcibly removed. But even those... What is, what is a punishment that someone receives in prison? Why is that a punishment? It's mental torture. It's mental torture. So, so, again, I, I think that having these truths among us will be the biggest medicine that we can have uh, to inoculate us to everything that would speak against this. We should gather no matter what, and if someone forces our bodies to be separated, then so be it, but let us not will to be separated from one another as a choice. Uh, let us always be together. And that then is the point, that's the emphasis of this. And I think it's, it's so touching to our time uh, that we would know isolation destroys us. It's not good. And if it's not good, then what is it? Bad. It's evil. It's, it's bad. It will destroy you. Um, and that's why, again, even someone who's in the hospital or bedridden, what should we do? Go to them. And what, what has our culture told us? Run from them. 
And that is an evil. It's a great evil among us. Those who are isolated, we should go to them and be with them as much as we can. And yes, of course, there's lots of things you're going to have to consider in doing that. But that's good. And we know it is because God says it. It's not good for man to be alone. Therefore, it's good for man to be together. together. Right. Okay. Have I beat that horse enough? Is that good? Okay. Horse beaten. We'll move on. Hey, Tony. I'm sorry. I want to point out to everybody in this room and to anybody who came to this church today that we should open our hymnal to the page zero, the very first page when we pull over, open the book. Uh, states the very first prayer that we pray is, Lord, I love the habitation of your house. <laughs> yeah, and that's right. For your glory to that's right. I don't find any glory anywhere else but in this church, and that's why I like to come here. And, and what is the church? The church is a family. That's right. Together. It's not a building. It's us. It's a congregation. It's the gathering. It's a gathering. That's right. That's right. Also, somewhere in the Bible, I don't want to put you on the spot, but somewhere in the Bible it stipulates, uh, uh, do not forsake the assembling. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. Let's go back to the verse. Verse 25. Uh, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And here's, and here's why. That's a good. It shows you how, how distant I had gone. Thanks for bringing us back. But hey, you came to the concluding point. This is great. Good. Um, I, Gary, did you have one more addition? So there was the fall. We were separated from God. But notice, what did Adam say? He said, well, that woman that you gave me made me do it. Mm -hmm. Separate man from woman. That is what the devil has done. Amen. So why should we preach getting together? Because the devil is doing the bad thing in preaching stay away. Right. Stay right. apart. Yeah, so, <clears throat> that's right. Well, and and uh, so the end of this verse tells us one of the, the most important reason why. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day that's approaching? The last day. The last day. <laughs> the judgment day. And if we are gathered together, what will judgment day be to us? Great. A wonderful gift. That's the point, that we will then have the true togetherness of the resurrection, where we will be together bodily forever. And, and also that we will have bodies like Christ. Glorified bodies like Christ. All right. Um, well, let's, uh, let's go a little bit further, because, again, now, as we develop the rest of this, notice, uh, this is sort of in the, well, I guess a little past the middle, but Hebrews is is all about us gathering and hearing and receiving the sprinkling of our soul with the blood of Jesus. And so all of this then is for our body and our soul. And all of it is found as Jesus among us. He is not far away. 
but he is among us. And this is the wonderful thing, is as I see you and you see me, and we have Christ, it is easier for me to see Christ when I am with you. Where two or three are gathered together, because I, I could look at myself, but looking at you, I see Christ in you. And you see Christ in me. This is part of the fellowship that we have. Okay, so uh, verse 26. So chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Now, notice this comes right after he just said, don't neglect meeting together. Uh, what does it mean to sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth? What? To stay home from church. <laughs> well, there's one. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think directly to cut ourselves off from Jesus. Um, but what does the phrase itself mean? Sin, sinning willfully. Yeah, you know it's wrong, and you do it out of the, the will of your heart, that you want to do it, and you follow that will, uh, and you set aside the will of Christ. Um, so if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So is this, uh, now we make a distinction. Does, is this the same as uh, if you sin later today, is that when you sin, what is the difference between when you sin willfully and when you sin not willfully or against your will? What? One is almost a natural expression. You just automatically say maybe a swear word or something. Ah, right. So one comes not with me planning to sin or me even desiring to sin. Because again, uh, you know, as Pastor Bezos said today, the point is, is that we would fight with our sinful nature. Uh, and this would be the difference then. Let's take Peter. After Peter was rebuked by Jesus and he called him Satan, um, was he restored? Okay. So was then Peter sinning willfully? No. Yes. If he did sin, it was willful. Well, here it says, if, for if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Was Peter forgiven? Yes. And even after he denied the Lord, let's fast forward. Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. Three times. Oh. And yet Peter is restored by Jesus because what does Jesus do three times? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So what is the difference between Judas and Peter? Because what happened to Judas? What did he do to Jesus? Well, he only betrayed him once. Peter did it three times. What's the difference between them? Peter was forgiven. 
Yeah, re repentance then. So if we are no longer repentant, we are willful. We willfully sin, and if we willfully sin and we refuse to repent, we have now no sacrifice left for our sins. So to be willful is that our will then would be fully engaged in sin. And there is no fight left. And the difference then in you is what? There's a fight left because you have what? The Holy Spirit, right? And this is why Paul makes this statement. And, and if you wish to dig a little deeper in this, Romans 7 is the greatest exposition of not willfully sinning. Because there is a law in his members that works against the law of his mind. And that is a strange thing to say. But he throws his body under the bus. He says, but if I do that, it is, it is my flesh and it is no longer I who do it. Because I do not will to do it. And I hate my sin. And I wish I would not do it. And as uh, Diana said earlier, you do it almost by nature and then you look at it and you're in disgust because you wish you would have never done it. A very different thing than to plan to do it and to continue to do it. And when you are addressed by someone, you refuse to repent. Yeah. Uh, interesting difference. Uh, I look at uh, Judas and Peter. Peter never left his family of believers. He stayed with them. Judas went off the door. Isolated himself. Ha! Yes! That's so true. He isolates himself. Yeah. Yeah, he, he refused to gather any longer. He separated himself, even bodily, from the communion of saints. Yeah. A lot of times when we talk about this too, um, we, we want to save ourselves from ever saying, I myself have fallen from faith. And confessions tell us that when we willfully sin, and Christians like Peter willfully sin, I mean, he, he was warned by Jesus that this would happen, and he said this will never happen, and against the better knowledge, he fell from faith. And, the, and, the, and when you fall from faith, the Holy Spirit is driven from your heart. That's what the, that's what the confessions say. And I remember this was a, a revelation for me when uh, I sat in one of my classes at the seminary when Professor Eichmann explained that to me. And I realized there were times in my faith when I look back and I wonder if I had faith or had fallen from faith. And in counseling people in the church, people have said, I did this, that, or the other thing. Could it be I was not in faith at the time? And, and, I, and I say to them, why wonder? I mean, if you had sin to regret in the past, let it be in the past and be repentant of that faith now and return. So, you know, a lot of times we talk, I never fell from faith. Well, I think probably we have all fallen from faith at times, but Jesus restored us just like he did Peter and brought us back to the faith. I mean, the really mysterious thing about this passage is there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. What are you talking about? Didn't Jesus die for all of the sins? How can there be no sacrifice of, for sins when Jesus paid for all of my sins? And the point that Paul is making in this text is that when you sin willfully, you remove yourself from Christ. He's no longer your Lord then sin is your Lord again. And you can be restored of it. 
But it's through repentance, it's through admission of that sin. As Peter wept when Jesus looked to him, he repented of his sin in light of his Savior. Right. And the Savior is always there with his hand extended to the fallen in faith to be lifted up again, which means that we don't write anyone off. People may fall from faith and we can recognize it. You are doing what the Lord forbids. You are not loving as he is loved. And we don't give up on them. Because there is yet a sacrifice for their sins, but they also then need to repent of that sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it, it was freeing for me to look back at my past and say, well, I think there were times in my life where I resisted the Holy Spirit and I fell out of faith sinning intentionally only to give thanks to God that he didn't leave me in that state but restored me unto repentance in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I, I, I think in the, in the freedom of the gospel, we should be able to admit that. There are times when I have an, uh, intentionally sinned. I did what I knew what was wrong, and Jesus still forgave me and, and gave me grace. And, and I think that increases the reality of the danger. Because yeah. our faith is not something that, uh, again, this is the same as the person who would say, I have solid food, now I don't, or I, I had solid food, now I just forget about Jesus. Um, is our, our ability to reject Jesus is still present with us. And therefore, we work out our faith in fear and trembling, knowing that David fell and that Peter fell. Praise God, they were restored. But may we take our lesson from them and not be among those who are falling. And this is why it's a warning. Let us not be them. Let us be those who, when we recognize and that we actively look for our sins so that we can get rid of them and never find ourselves willfully sinning, but repenting and receiving the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, all right, <clears throat> we, uh, we better close. Sorry, I, I, I took you longer, but it was good all the same, right? All right, let's pray. Uh, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have brought us to recognize our sin, that we may confess them and not be burdened by them. Lord, we ask that you would keep us from willful sin and continue to give us a repentant heart. In your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Till next time.